If you've got, um, if you have our church app, you can click over pretty easily to get to some notes so that you can follow along with every Sunday's message has corresponding notes, fill in the blanks, some places to keep track of what you're thinking, what you're learning, and um, then eventually uh, work your way down to the bottom of the notes and email it to yourself if you're that kind of person that likes to archive and remember things and so on. So just wanted to throw that out to you. Don't forget that on the church app there's ways to take notes. We're talking about God providing for us a higher power. And we, we talked last week about God's presence through His Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and we came up with this word, we, we discovered this word, ruach, which means it's represented, that God's Spirit is represented as a life-giving force that brings life and order, and it animates things that were originally dead to life, and the words that you'll find in the Old Testament, you'll find words like breath and wind, and you'll find words like spirit. And how does God, how does God bring creative order? At the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, how does God bring creative order when the, when the earth is dark and formless? How does He bring creative order? It is the work of the Spirit that brings life and order to the darkness and to the chaos. He hovered, remember this, He hovers over it all and at, at some point or other brings creative life. So we want to start by remembering that darkness and chaos will come to life and it'll come to order, and it does so by the work of the Spirit. So where there is darkness and where there is chaos and where it comes to life and order, you can tell that something's happening, the Spirit is working. And that's the um, easiest way to, to start. So when someone says, how does God bring life and order to the world? Well, at creation, He did it by the work of His Spirit. How does He do it among the disorder of humanity? When we have disorder among humanity, here's a question for you. How is God going to fix it? When there's chaos among humanity, how is God going to fix it? How does He fix it? By the work of His Spirit among humanity, God brings life and order to people's lives and hearts, to people's bodies, to relationships, now, in the Hebrew Bible, where God's presence and glory comes to live, God, His glory and His presence comes to live among His people. And He does so inside the temple. Any Old Testament people here? Where are my Old Testament? I don't mean you were born then. I mean you're just a fan of the Old Testament. Any people who find themselves gravitating towards the Old Testament? Um, God is present among His people, right? How is He present among His people? He, His glory is present there in the temple. And what about the ongoing need for order and life? What about the need in God's people for ongoing order and life among His people? How does God make Himself known and make Himself present among those people? So, in the Old Testament, He's present among his, uh, uh, among his people in the temple, and then in an ongoing way, what does God do in order to make sure that He is present there? The prophet Joel speaks to that. And the prophet Joel announces the words of God. And the prophet Joel announces that in the future, the Spirit of God will pour out on all people. Check this out. Then, 
After doing all these things, this is God speaking through the, the, the prophet Joel, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men, and women alike. So God announces that his presence is in a temple, but he's going to eventually pour out his spirit. And he, this kind of connects us to the uh, uh, chapter 3 of Joel. In the chapter 3 of Joel, God announces that He's going to live with His people. Or there's a word that's used in this uh, passage that's used later, which is God says, I will dwell with my people. I will live among them. I will live with them. And you can't underestimate the power of God being present with His people. Does anybody remember in being in a classroom when you were in elementary, or maybe you're a teacher, TA, or somehow you've had experience in a classroom among little people when the teacher is out of the classroom? I mean, I mean, how long does it take before you literally have Lord of the Flies going on in that classroom? You know what I mean? I live this. I remember living this out when the teacher um, disappeared from our classroom, and for whatever reason, I started to tease my buddy Jim, who sits behind me. He and I are friends. We've been friends for all of um, elementary school. And I was, you know, third grade, fourth grade, busting Jim's chops. Jim was in a bad mood. And like any good friend, I continued to irritate him while he was in a bad mood and pushing on his arm. I was turned around in my seat. And I remember turning fully around and I'm tapping his elbow, and old Jimmy, my buddy, stands up. And he stood up so fast, the back of his knees knocked his chair back. So the first thing that happens is he startles me by standing up. The next thing that happens is I hear this crash, and I'm like, this is getting intense fast. The next thing I know, Jim punches my face. My old buddy Jim punches his BFF right in the face. And all of this happened before I knew um, before I knew to flinch, before I could react. He, he hits me so hard, I start back over my desk, and he follows through, and I grab his hand, and we tumble over the desk, which evidently was enough noise to alert the teacher that couldn't have been too far because, of course, she comes right around the corner and enters the room while I'm rolling back on the desk. And fortunately, Jim was still on top of me because she knew who the aggressor was. And I got taken out. He got taken out. We got a nice stern talking to and... Um, I remember Jim explaining to her that the reason he punched me in the face is because he was irritated by my behavior. And, and I remember saying something to the teacher. I don't think this is the phrase, but he's not wrong. He's not, he's not wrong. But I couldn't help but notice, as I think back on this, I couldn't help but notice how important, how vital, how crucial it was for little people up to no good to have the presence of the teacher in the classroom. Would you agree? When the authority is in the room, you behave better. There is also, when the authority is in the room, you're, you have confidence that things are going to go the way they're supposed to. When the authority enters the room, you start to kind of um, let go of some of your fears and worries about what's going to happen and who's going to do it. 
And in large part, God knows that He cannot just start a people group and then commission a people group and then just tell them things and hope that they get it together and hope that they know Him personally and hope that they grow to love Him unless He is present in the room. How does God become present in the room? He sends His Son. And He sends His Son in such an incredible way that it's literally you, it's, it's literally the word, God dwelt with His people. God dwells with His people. The word shows up again, and it's connected to the Spirit being poured out. And so we arrive at the, old, at the end of the Old Testament, and we're thinking to ourselves, when and how are God's people going to experience the presence of God? Well, there is a starting point, and the starting point is the new temple, Jesus. The starting point is when God's glory and His exact likeness begins to make an appearance on the earth through the Son, and His divine presence and His divine power is manifest as Jesus comes to dwell on the earth among His people by means of His Spirit. Apparently, the way that God would finally have His kingdom of priests is through the beginning, the high priest Jesus, who eventually brings the Holy Spirit to all of His people. And Jesus is the one who is greater than the temple. He is the true and better temple who um, is full of the power and presence and glory of God. He is the one who is called the glory. He is called the radiance of God's glory, in fact. And He dwells with His people. Here's where John describes this to us. So the Word, who is Jesus, became human and made His home. That's the word dwelt. He dwells, right? If you have a different version of the Bible, this is the New Living, if you have a different version, it probably says, He dwelt among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, just like His Father, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and, holy, one and only Son. So the glory of God is manifest and becomes present with humanity through Jesus, and we see that uh, um, at the very beginning of um, the New Testament, God is already making Himself known and making Himself present right here in the Holy Spirit, uh, through the Holy Spirit, right here in His Son. In the New Testament, Jesus set up a tabernacle among us. He Himself is the temple. You remember when um, uh, He was trying to tell the disciples, He's basically saying, please, if you could just understand any of what I'm telling you, this temple is going to be torn down again. And people are like, ooh, He called Himself the temple. Who does He think He is? He is saying, I am full of the radiance. I'm the exact likeness and image of God. I am the glory of the Father in person. He is in the physical manifestation. So how is the Holy Spirit working then in the New Testament? God deliberately worked to bring His own physical presence among humanity as prophesied by Joel by the work of the Spirit. And he accomplished that through Jesus. So what should we notice about Jesus? And I kind of want to skim a survey of the New Testament, especially the Gospels, to help us see how the Spirit's at work bringing about Jesus and bringing about God's presence with us. Because it's going to help us see that Jesus' origins are the creative work of the Spirit. Right? We know that the earth has its origins in, in the creative power of the Spirit. But also, as Jesus kind of makes His arrival on the scene here among humanity, we see that the Holy Spirit is at work bringing this. And we'll kind of go on a quick tour here. 
This, this tour is so quick, you don't even have to put your seatbelt down for this, okay? It's going to be short. And uh, we're going to skim the New Testament, beginning with this, Jesus' birth. Check this out. This is in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 1. This is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant. Well, that seems unbelievable, right? Because that womb of hers was dark, and there was no life in that womb. But the Holy Spirit goes to work, and in the darkness, and in the, um, and in the aloneness of that womb, what does the Holy Spirit do? Brings life, and brings creative war- order in such a way that is going to bring life to other people. So, she became pregnant. How did that happen? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right at the very beginning, Jesus' birth. Right there in the darkness of a womb, the Spirit's at work and bringing life. And, and it's hard for me to understand, and I hope, maybe this is true for you too, when I think about this conception that occurs by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's kind of like a mind bender. And I kind of think to myself, I, it's so hard to grasp. And then when I link it to the Holy Spirit hovering over the dark, chaotic elements of the earth, bringing creative power out of that, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, that's no big deal. The Holy Spirit is going to bring life in that womb. That's no big deal. If the Holy Spirit can bring life and uh, order in the earth that's full of chaos and darkness at the very beginning, this doesn't seem like such a, a big deal. But also the Holy Spirit was there responsible for Jesus' baptism. Check this out. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form, descended on him like a dove. Holy Spirit is present at the very beginning, his birth, and then the Holy Spirit is there affirming and empowering him right at his baptism. The Holy Spirit was at work in Jesus' origins. And then Jesus, of course, is tested This is a fascinating passage. If you haven't read this passage yet, I I encourage you to look this up, find this passage, and look where Jesus is uh, in the desert being tempted by Satan. Fascinating. So, so fascinating. And he's also um, teaching. But first, he's tested. And and we see that even his mission here, Jesus' mission in his life was empowered by the Spirit. Look at this. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River, and he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was eventually tested by Satan. And, I mean, this is a side note, but it also means that we should be careful when we start to face testing, and we're kind of like believing that somehow God's abandoned us. I mean, imagine Jesus here is being tested by Satan himself, and he hasn't been abandoned by God. The Holy Spirit led him into testing. And that's just a side note, but here we see Jesus is led by the Spirit right there for his testing, and as he began teaching, Luke points out and makes note of something very special about Jesus' teaching. Jesus is teaching the disciples, and look what Luke points out about his teaching. At the same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So as he's teaching, Jesus isn't just filled with intellect. Jesus just isn't filled with knowledge. 
Jesus just isn't filled with the desire to kind of tell people things that they need to hear. How is Jesus teaching? He's tested by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then He's teaching with the joy of the Holy Spirit, who's at work, working in and through Him to empower this. The Holy Spirit was the source of also was the source of the most vital distinction. Some of you know this already, but the, that, the very thing that makes the Christian faith distinct from other Christian faith, or the, any other faith and religion, is the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says that if the bodily resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then Christians are fools then everything that we have lived for and willing to die for is worthless. That the Christian faith is set apart by the resurrection. And sure enough, look what we discover here, that Jesus' resurrection was the new creation work of the Spirit. Not just His origins, but also this incredible scene, this distinction in the Christian faith, where Jesus demonstrates power over death. Here it is in Romans. Paul writes about it. He says, He was shown to be the Son of God when He was raised from the dead. How did that happen? This is important for us. Jesus isn't just kind of like grinding it out through death and then eventually musters up the fleshly human willpower to get Himself up off that ground. Instead, while His body is laying there, fully human, The power of the Holy Spirit is at work, fully God bringing life to where there was death and disorder in that tomb. In that tomb, the Holy Spirit works to bring power to that body and bring life to that body. And that's how we see that He is the Son of God, because of Him having the power to overcome death, which is unlike any human has ever done and certainly will ever do. So that's how we know Jesus is more than just a supreme teacher. And I don't know if this is something that maybe you've wondered in your own mind. I don't know if this is something that maybe when you were talking with family over at Thanksgiving, you had somebody who was convinced that Jesus exists, but he's just a good teacher. He's authoritative. He's super, I mean, uh, people who are honest know that nobody disputes that Jesus was alive. The real dispute is, who was he? And so many people say he was clearly just an authoritative teacher or that Jesus was clearly just a moral example. We ought to see Jesus and and let him inspire us to good morality. Or other people might say, well, I, I believe that Jesus exists, but he clearly is just an inspiring leader. Others see Jesus as primarily, almost exclusively a social activist. And they say, we take our cues from Jesus. He is all about bringing liberation to those who are oppressed. And that's primarily what we get from Jesus. But instead, what do we learn here? That none of that is true on its own and exclusively important. It's it's not primary. It's not supreme. What's supreme? That He was shown to be the Son of God when Jesus didn't just do a good job teaching and changing and leading by example and inspiring leaders. Jesus demonstrated that I ain't like any of those other religious leaders. I am exclusively, supremely different. And how do we know that? Because Jesus is the only one who claims and whose followers claim that He was raised from the dead. And we see it at work here by the power of the Spirit. Jesus is uniquely God. 
fully God, and He's uniquely fully human at the same time. The power of the Spirit to um, participate and bring life in the conception, and obviously the humanity of His flesh and bones. This visible, bodily resurrection is the divine power of God over death. What does that mean? It means that those people who trust in Jesus may die, but they don't stay dead. And that's unique to the Christian faith, that they um, experience this same power that raised Christ from the dead, kind of quickens our mortality and brings new life. So then, that's not the end of the work of the Spirit in and through Jesus. In fact, Jesus um, appears to His closest followers, and His closest followers didn't recognize Him at first, but then eventually recognized Him to be Jesus who was glowing in some kind of glorious state. Kind of like what you all look like every Sunday on the way to church in your glorious state. Jesus appears to his closest followers, and his disciples said, There is something about this Jesus. This we didn't recognize him at first. Now there's this glow about him and this resurrection power. Jesus didn't just glow because he had some kind of desire to impress. He wasn't trying to leave an impression with how he looked. Instead, what do we discover? He is demonstrating this Holy Spirit power and he uses it to send his disciples. This power's at work. This power's alive in him and through him. And this was passed on to his followers. How? Jesus literally breathes. Remember that word? Remember that word, breathe? The Holy Spirit, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in all those words, spirit and breath. So Jesus passes this on to His followers. He breathes on them and He empowers them. What does He empower them to do? To radiate God's glory. How? With an indwelling spirit that brings life to the inside, and to radiate God's authority among all the humanity, to power to advance His kingdom and do the things that Jesus did to help people see that for sure the kingdom is here, the kingdom's arrived, the kingdom has approached. Here's how John writes it here in his gospel. Again, he said, peace be with you. That's Jesus. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then Jesus breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. I find it fascinating to consider that when you belong to Jesus and you have this indwelling spirit, that there is access to the same creative power that God um, used to bring life to creation, to bring um, the, 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 the life of Jesus to Mary's womb. That same power is among and breathed into life of those who belong to Jesus. And we see the very first picture of how the indwelling spirit from the breath of Jesus comes alive in his disciples. And then soon after that, we get to the book of Acts and we see, just like Joel said, that the spirit is poured out, right? The spirit falls on and fills up believers who are gathered together in the upper room. And um, even more of the sincere believers begin to be filled overflowing with this Holy Spirit. Tackle... Uh, a lot of that next week. Today, through the power of the Holy Spirit, He has given His followers very specifically for us. Check this out. God's Spirit today continues to hover over a dark and chaotic world. 
today. Um, if you watched government work this week or not work, or then work and then kind of work, and then some of you I know probably think, oh, that was a disaster, it didn't work, and others are like, this is why the framers of the Constitution put these kinds, it was working, right? But if any of you watched our government working or not working this week and thought, this is scary, I don't know where this is going, how this is going, where this is going to lead, how this is going to lead, and you trembled a bit, you winced a bit, it's probably a better way to describe it, right? Most of us aren't like trembling, but there's a lot of wincing going on when you think about the leaders of our country, the leaders of the world. Anybody wince? Just little, and my, my kids use this word, I think it's, it's, a, it's fitting, it's, it's just cringy. It's cringy, right? The people who are, the guilt, are, who are guilty of something are condemning other people for doing the very same thing that they're guilty over, guilty of. And if you've ever thought to yourself, I don't know how, and by the way, not just the, the leaders of the world, but the leaders among us, the CEOs and the pastors and the business leaders and the uh, sports leadership and whatever, if any of that is cringy to you because it makes you question and maybe a little bit leery about where this is all heading and how this is going to eventually play itself out, corruption, sin, selfishness, uh, all of the depravity that's expressed through humanity around the world, I want you to take this in. Listen to this. Listen to this. God's Spirit continues to hover over a dark and chaotic world, the one that we are presently living in. Slowly healing and working. How many of you have experienced a um, soul-shattering grief? Raise your hand if you would. Grief, grief. Knockout grief, right? And how many of you would say, since then, you've made progress toward health? Would you also raise your hand? You've made progress toward health. Can I put a theory out there? I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psych... I don't know why I point to my head when I say that. <laughs> I don't have any... I'm not a psychiatrist, psychologist. But theologically, can I explain to you why in the middle of your grief when you sometimes thought, I'm not going to... I'm not going to be able to continue on. I'm not going to be able to move from this. I'm not going to be able to recover from this in any way. My life has ended. The earth is scorched. It's nothing but ashes. And then somehow some beauty starts to kind of perk up. You know why? Here's why. Because slowly, slowly but surely, there is a Spirit of God that brings life and order to death and chaos. And that Spirit is at work toward a day when everything sad will come untrue, will be undone. And from the beginning, God, by the wisdom and compassion and power of His Holy Spirit, has been at work hovering over the earth, bringing healing to the planet, bringing hope to humanity. And it's not happening accidentally, and it's not happening because of a bunch of American people said, we ought to do kind things and change the world. It's happening because there is a Holy Spirit orchestrating the ongoing slow, seasonal health and healing of the planet. And I tell you, I take a lot of comfort in knowing that as bad as it looks, I do believe there's biblical evidence from the beginning all the way to the end of the Bible that God's at work by His Spirit healing. 
And our hope as believers is that this healing doesn't end because there's gridlock in somebody's house of representatives. This hope and healing doesn't end because there is global cooperation to reset everything and bring in a new order and all of a sudden we're like, well, that was a good run for the humans. God's in charge of this stuff. So what do we do now? Start with this. Since Jesus' origins are a work of the Spirit, we can trust that Jesus is fully God. What does that mean? If you are looking to find God, I know most of you here, you know, whether you're tuned in live stream or you're here presently uh, here uh, in person with us, if you if, have already, quote unquote, found God or been found by God, but if you're looking to kind of find God, here's something I want, there's something that we learned from the scripture today that God has revealed himself and allow me to submit this to you. He's revealed himself exclusively in Jesus alone. He has not revealed his exact image in other forms of religion. He hasn't revealed his exact image um, in other forms of religious leaders. So what that means is that it is not true that if you are in any kind of religion working your way up the mountain, it isn't true. The Bible does not support this. The scriptures that we learned today does not support that if you're just kind of working your way up the religious mountain, eventually everybody ends up at the same summit. What we learn here is that God is working by His Spirit and dwells with His people and has become present and knowable in his exact image exclusively through the person of Jesus. And how do we know he belongs to God? He raised him from the dead. I mean, there are religious leaders who are awfully popular, successful, and well-known, semi-famous. They all dead in the ground, in their tomb, wherever they are. Apart from following Jesus, it could be said, logically, that you may be climbing the mountain, but apart from following Jesus, you're climbing the wrong mountain. That you may get to the summit and then realize, dang it, wrong mountain. Now I can see I should be on that mountain, the Jesus mountain, and following Him. And maybe you're someone who isn't primarily looking to find God, but you realize that you need to get right with God. And your sense is that it's about time that you got right with God. And here we learn that you need only to believe and receive the person of Jesus alone. And he makes you right with God. You don't need to find the right church. You don't have to find the right Bible translation. You don't have to find the right literature, the right book, author, blogger, webcaster. I mean, you have to find Jesus. Believe and receive Jesus alone. And you, at the same time, can be careful to purge, or you don't have to concern yourself with a balanced diet of inspiring gurus or mystical experiences or traditional ancient religions. Just... Jesus alone, exclusively and supremely. See him and savor him and let the joy of being saved and rescued by him 
help you inspired, help you be inspired to serve him. That's how it works. Trust him and treasure him alone. And the searching and wondering and browsing and following and, 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 and kind of just looking through the assortment of, of a spiritual inspiration buffet, it's all over. It's a one-course meal. And it's the person of Jesus. Also, secondly, since Jesus fully depended on the empowering of the Spirit, so should we. Last thing I want to point out. If Jesus, fully God, fully man, depended on the Holy Spirit for his testing and his teaching and for his sending of the disciples, making disciples, can I, send, can I, can I drop this one on you? If he depended on the Holy Spirit, I'm going to say it in a way that's a little stiffer. How about this? If Jesus was fully dependent on the Holy Spirit, who do we think we are living self-reliantly every day? Right? Who, I mean, where, what, where did we get that idea? In our bones to achieve and succeed. And if you're leading a thriving and healthy family, if you're building a successful business, if you are patiently trying to help someone who you love who is wandering from the faith or hasn't yet come to faith and you're patiently waiting and trying to think of how to make some kind of dent in their trajectory of faith, maybe you're, un, uh, maybe you're navigating an uncertain future, college future, career future, medical future. Maybe you're at the end stage of life Deepening your affection for and obedience to Jesus. How does that happen? By depending on the Holy Spirit. What's made you think that you can depend on your own wisdom? What has made you think that you can depend on your own power? What's made you think that you can depend on your own efforts for the outcomes that God desires for you? Church family, we collectively and individually should bring ourselves before God and repent for our self-reliance. That is my stubborn sin in my life, is my own self-reliance. And every day I remind myself I should give up on self-reliance. And every day I start the morning fresh, back to self-reliance. I got this. I'm going to do this. If Jesus depended fully on the Holy Spirit, so should we. So today, now, here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to consider releasing control of those things that you are relying on yourself to solve, to achieve, or to help. It's a work of the Spirit to help you do that. And then it's dependence. Now, what does that look like? We could spend time the next couple of Sundays kind of looking at how Jesus um, commissioned us, how the Holy Spirit fell and filled us, and what does it look like individually or corporately to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. But I want to start with us just agreeing together. It's time to just say, time to relinquish control because if Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit, I ain't Jesus. How's that sound? Let's pray together.